0: So in the Old Testament, we turn to Amos chapter 9, reading just the first 10 verses of that chapter. So Amos 9, verses 1 through 10. God's word from the Old Testament given to us, his people. Give your attention to the reading of it, Amos 9, 1 through 10, God's word. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. Those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide... If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord of hosts, he, the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, all and all who dwell in it mourn. All of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Ker? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with the sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. As for the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So when was the last time you played hide-and-go-seek? Well, it's a safe bet that we've all played this game at least once or twice in our lives. Though it is decidedly a child's game, when you're three, five, or seven, it can be a lot of fun to discover who can find the best hiding place. But as you get older, it loses its enjoyment. It's too much effort to squeeze yourself in the back of the closet. And yet, just because we outgrow this hide-and-seek game doesn't mean we stop hiding. For we all have things that we conceal from others, that splurge purchase you paid with for cash so that the, your spouse didn't see it, the browsing history you erase, the doctor's report that you keep to yourself, or that TV show you only watch by yourself. Yeah, we like to keep our secrets that no one else can find, which even can go for God, even though it makes no sense. The thought of hiding stuff from God is, yet bounces around in our heads. And this was especially the case for Israel, who played professional hide-and-go-seek from the Lord. And yet by their exercise of vanity, we come to see our true hiding place, which is to be fully seen in Christ. So despite that Bethel, Bethel priest attempt to banish Amos, and his preaching from the northern kingdom, Amos has continued his ministry. He again, once again, boldly proclaims the Lord's word even in the face of human opposition. And once again, the Lord has a sermon for his prophet that's quite visual. Amos preaches what he sees, and he beholds the Lord standing next to the altar. Now, it isn't made explicit, but presumably this is the apostate altar of that Bethel shrine. So remember that the altar was considered a link between heaven and earth. It was considered sort of like a drop box. By the smoke of the altar, the people's prayers and expiations were beamed up to God, and the Lord's blessings and favors descended down upon his people. The altar was the living link of communion between God and his people. Moreover, the altar was the people's confidence and assurance that the Lord was with them for their good and protection. And yet now, as the Lord stands by this altar, he is in the mood for demolition. He calls for the sledgehammers and the wrecking balls, strike the capitals, shake the thresholds. The Lord is going to knock over the pillars and bring the roof down with such force that it shatters the foundation. The Israelites loved the shrine and altar of Bethel, even though it was apostate, but now it's going to be crumbling into a pile of debris. And with the holy place gone, the people's false sense of security is exposed. By the temple, or the, the, by the temple, they thought sealed God's, um, blessing upon them and, um, and that thus they were safe. But with the temple destroyed and, and gone, now the door is flung open for the Lord's judgment. Indeed, with the altar and shrine gone, the Lord's wrath will now fall upon his people from head to tail. From the loftiest noble to the lowliest pauper, no person will be exempt. No man, no woman, or child. There will be no escape for anyone. But this doesn't mean they don't try. Note that the image here is of the people darting every which way to hide and avoid the Lord's sword. And their desperation definitely makes them inventive. For how do you hide from God? Well, for one, you can try and burrow down into Sheol. The realm of the dead was considered to be the land of pitch black, and it was thought to be the domain of its own God. Surely a God in the heavens, like Yahweh, has no jurisdiction in the underworld. Now, seeking asylum in Hades doesn't seem very smart, and it isn't, But fearful sinners are not known for their intelligence. Thus the Lord can merely reach down and pluck them out. Next, some will attempt to scale the heavens, which seems even dumber yet. For the Lord is in the heavens. How can you hide by entering God's own throne room? And yet reaching heaven wasn't so much about getting some place as it was to obtain a status. To gain heaven was to win immortality, to steal the glory of an angel or a deity. To reach angel level surely made you immune to judgment. But no, the Lord will cast them down too. Next, the running refugees will attempt to camouflage themselves in a thick forest and the deep caves of Mount Carmel. Others will take a submarine down to the ocean floor to visit Spongebob. Surely there's no way Yahweh will find them in the mysterious and unknown regions under the sea. But it's no good. For those hiding in the seaweed, the Lord will merely command his sea dragon to bite them, and his hounds will sniff them out upon Carmel. Others, finally, will try to conceal themselves among the nations. Amid the swarms of foreign people, surely they can blend in like an ant in a massive colony. Besides, the Lord is no good. It wears Waldo, so he won't be able to find them. Not so, though. He will unleash his sword, and it will slay them. Therefore, all the sinners' attempts to get away or to stow away from God are in vain. At the highest high and the lowest low... Yahweh is there. In the darkest night and the deepest cave, God is there. There is no rock that he cannot see through, no ocean he cannot hear through, and no fortress his hand cannot penetrate. For as the Lord says, I fix my eye on them for evil and not for good. Yahweh's all-seeing eye is inescapable, And unavoidable. There's no place in heaven or on earth or under the earth where his eye cannot spy you. And when his eye is focused on dishing out evil, then it unleashes the terrible agonies of his wrath. To run and hide from the Lord is like a clam trying to escape the ocean, it cannot be done. And yet, sinners are always wont to attempt. This insanity. Why is it that we think that we have some privacy that God cannot get to? We may not dive into a deep cave, but we will tuck our sins down under the covers of our consciousness. We'll sweep our evil desires under the rug of forgetfulness. If we pretend and delude ourselves as if sin never even happened, then maybe God will not notice. We use the dark places of our subconsciousness to hide from God our sinfulness. But it doesn't work. There is no place in this grand and mysterious universe or in the unknown regions of our soul to hide. For the Lord is truly and gloriously in all places, and he's all-knowing. Hence, Amos breaks into a little hymn to sing of the transcendent glory of the Lord, verses 5 and 6. He says, Yahweh, the God of hosts, Yahweh is his name. He touches the earth and it melts like ice cream on a hot day. One fingerprint of God and the metamorphic rock liquefies. The Lord has established his chambers in heaven, his vault is set upon the earth, which means that his throne and dominion is set secure and safe forever. His reign is unassailable, and there is no other. Indeed, the Lord can whistle for the waters of the great ocean to jump up and deluge the land, and they will obey like a perfectly trained dog. For many foolish reasons, we have the tendency to think that our God is small. He doesn't see us. He isn't listening to us. The Lord won't do anything. His arm is too short. His jurisdiction is limited. God is preoccupied with bigger matters, too much to pay attention to little old me and my trivial sins. But nothing could be further from the truth. The God to whom we belong is majestic and glorious beyond our wildest imagination. Omniscient and omnipresent, perfectly just and supremely holy, the Lord God will bring all things into judgment and there is no hiding. There is no escape from the hands of the living God. And now that the Lord has seized the running and hiding Israelites, he now publishes his verdict. He reveals what he sees in these Israelites, and he judges them to be just like the Cushites to him. Now, the Cushites hail from the kingdom of Nubia, which was located in the area of modern-day Ethiopia. And this comparison of Israel with the Cushites isn't derogatory per se. That is, the Cushites weren't Infamous sinners or anything. Instead, the point is that they're just a random nation. The Lord will now look upon Israel like any old or any odd nation that he plucked their name out of a hat. That is, there's no special history or relationship between Yahweh and the Cushites. Like the Libyans or the Sumerians, the Cushites are just another fish in the sea. But this is how Israel has become to God. How can this be? Israel's God's chosen people. They're the apple of his eye. He called Israel his firstborn son. The Lord united himself to Israel like a man to his wife. The personal and intimate history between Yahweh and Israel goes way back, even to the beginning. Back in chapter 2 of Amos, the Lord said that he had known Israel alone out of all the nations of the world. All the other nations are strangers to the Lord, but Israel is his longtime bride. And yet now he sees them as a Jane doe? They become like the Cushites, a people with no history or pre-existing relationship with the Lord? Yahweh will look upon Israel as if he's peering into the face of a stranger. This is ice-cold estrangement and divorce that freezes the soul. And it gets worse. Next, he brings up the exodus from Egypt. Yes, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, but he also transported the Philistines from Kaptur, and he migrated the Arameans from Kerr. This compares the exodus to the random movements of people groups. As the Lord of all the earth, he shuffles nations around like pieces on a chessboard. By migration, wars, and climate change, the Lord will pick up a nation from their homeland and put them in a new location. Yet, such nomadicism means little, at least to us from the point of view of providence. There's nothing special about the movement of people groups. The Exodus, though, was very special. It was the Lord's redemption and selection of Israel to be his sole people. The Exodus ransomed Israel as God's firstborn. It transformed the Hebrews to be God's holy nation and kingdom on earth. No other nation tasted of the Exodus. No other group enjoyed all the privileges and blessings of the Exodus. But now the Lord views the Exodus as a random people mover. This basically strips all meaning from the Exodus. It undoes and races everything holy and redemptive from the Exodus. Such as covenant divorce. Worse yet, it burns all the wedding photos and their whole life together as if the marriage never existed. Israel? Who's Israel? Exodus? What Exodus? This is the ultimate punishment of God to become unknown, unspecial, and unloved. Bodily death ten times over is better than losing every shred of your covenantal status and identity with the Lord. God forsaken, God forgotten, God unknown, there is no worse fate. Thus, the Lord will treat them like any other sinful kingdom. The Lord eyes the sinful kingdom to annihilate them from the face of the earth. He'll erase them from the history books like any number of other people groups before Israel and after them. They will soon be a relic of a past and lost age that archaeologists dig up and wonder about. And yet, as soon as the last candle is blown out in Israel, one wick comes back to life. A smoldering ember sparks back the flame. He says, I will not utterly blot out the house of Jacob. Now, wait a minute. All the language and imagery up to this point has been a total end of Israel. The Lord's judgment is inescapable. No one survives. No one gets away. The whole of the Exodus is erased and all of Israel disappears. But now, as as an exception to all this totality, a piece of Israel will remain. And the picture of survival is that of sifting. That is you you use a fine mesh strainer to separate the good from the bad. Typically you sift the grain so that the good wheat falls through and the rocks and the bud bugs are caught in the sieve. But nothing but, but something is missing from this analogy here. Note that the Lord doesn't clarify what is being sifted. He doesn't tease out how the desirables are kept and the undesirables are discarded. Instead, all he says is not a pebble will fall to the earth. Now, typically, pebbles are the bad that you keep out. And yet falling to the ground has been repeated over and over as the action for death and destruction. So are the pebbles good or bad in this picture? And what's the value of falling to the ground? Well, the Lord doesn't make it clear. Instead, the Lord drops the slightest bit of hope that a remnant will be saved by sifting, but he obscures how the sifting works. All that is clear is that the sifting happens among the nations. By exile and through exile, not all of Israel will perish. Through a mysterious sifting process, some will remain to the Lord. How and who we do not know, but the Lord will preserve a remnant for Jacob. The Lord, though, does publish who won't make it. There is no clue on how to survive, but what kills is loud and clear. Verse 10, notice he says, all the sinners who die will say, disaster won't touch us. Um, Among the arrogant rebels of Israel, there's a strong feeling of immunity. They're untouchable and exempt. Ruin is an illness that they're just not subject to. Disaster holds no danger or threat to them. We will be fine no matter what. They boast that we are fireproof, curse-resistant, and secure from all harm. But it's precisely such presumptuous pride that the Lord targets. Thinking themselves safe, these sinners will be blotted out. And from this terrifying message of Amos, we are reminded about essential truth of our salvation. These verses present an all-encompassing judgment of the Lord upon his people. And the reaction of the people is to escape. The presumption is that they can avoid the day of retribution. And this is what sinners do. We are wont to think that we are special enough to skip God's judgment. If we just make our dwelling separate from the world, we can wall up our commune to be safe from the world's pandemics as if hiding at the bottom of the sea. Or we can blend in with the world. We can hide in plain sight. If we just mimic the paganism and atheism of the world, then God will functionally cease to exist and we are safe. Or we puff ourselves up as special, unique, and immune. Ruin can't touch us. We have the exodus on our side. We are heirs to the great history of the church. Evil cannot harm us. But all of these are misguided delusions. As sinners descended from Adam, we must all pass through the judgment of God. There is no exemptions, no get-out-of-free-jail cards, and no immunity. Israelites and Cushites, Philistines and Arameans, Americans and Russians, every last mortal son of Adam and daughter of Eve will experience the judgment of God. And when we stand before the judgment seat of God, there is no hiding. Before God, you have no clothes, no privacy, no subconscious suppression. Even the sinful urges that we are ignorant of will come out. Not all, though, will perish in the judgment. There is a sifting to save some, but all will be judged. The question is how. How are we sifted through the fires to live on? Well, the Lord doesn't tell us here, but he does make clear what not to do. Who will be those who surely perish? Those who think they're immune. Those who hide and attempt to flee the judgment. The effort to escape the judgment always gets you killed. If hiding, then, is 100% lethal, where does hope lie? Well, it's found in voluntary self-exposure. Hope points us to willing confession, to open repentance, to humble submission. Either God strips us kicking and screaming, or we willingly undress falling down as though dead, letting all our shame and sin hang out, confessing our own depravity, admitting that we deserve every bit of judgment. Herein lies hope. And why does such abject exposure hint at survival? Surely being naked in a snowstorm or running towards the fire only kills you faster. And yet in scripture, such bare repentance looks for a covering outside of ourselves. As we willingly give to God our filthy clothes, we plead for him to give us new clothes. When we admit that our sins leave us soaked in gasoline before the Lord's flames, we look to a flame-proof robe namely Christ himself. By repentance, we put our trust in Jesus Christ to safely bring us through God's judgment. Again, there's no avoiding the judgment. We will all be judged by God. The question is, will you be judged by yourself or will you be judged in Christ? Will you go it alone or will you fall helplessly into the arms of Christ to carry you through. Indeed, this is what faith is. It's resting in Christ to be judged in him. This is what is pictured in our baptism. We are buried with Christ in his death and raised to new life in him. This is the glory of his righteousness imputed to you by faith alone. The garment of his obedience, credit to you, all of grace is the power of God to make you stand in the judgment. Christ's robe then sifts you through the judgment to purify you and make you a new creation. We are judged in Christ so that in him there is no more condemnation for us. This is the wonder of, of God's salvation for you, that he gives you lovingly to Christ and Jesus brings you through the wrath to be justified and to bring you to the glorious shores of everlasting life. And this is amazingly revealed to us in Revelation that we read. In chapter 6, as the unbelievers tried to hide from the wrath of the Lamb, They are unable to stand in the judgment. Yet in the next portrait in chapter 7, we see all the saints from every tribe and language doing what? Standing in white robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. This is the glory of Christ, that he makes you stand in his obedience through judgment unto everlasting life. Therefore, let us be those who are poor in spirit. May we cast our sinful selves upon Christ alone, in faith alone, through his righteousness alone. May we, knowing that we're nothing, poor and naked, rest in Jesus for our everything. For Christ is your pardon. He is your life. And he is your eternal clothing in grace, so that you are sealed in the love of the Father, so that he will never lose you. Thus praise the Lord for our great God, for such a wonderful salvation, and such an eternal security that we have in Christ. Amen. Let's pray.